Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from Redeemer Church, and I want you to know how encouraged we are by what the Lord is doing here at Christ Press. It is not an easy thing to plant a brand new work, and you're doing it. The Lord is with you, so thank you for letting me come. This morning, we're going to be looking together at Romans chapter 8. So if you'll turn there with me, we're going to be reading just two verses. Romans 8 and 29 and 30. Hear the word of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, immediately preceding this particular passage, you'll remember it's one of the most well-known and best-loved verses, I think, in the Bible. Romans 8.28, probably many of you have memorized it. For all who love God, because they're called, everything works together for good. The Lord's purpose is for them to be conformed to the image of His Son. All of providence is engaged on their behalf. There are no exceptions for the saints. Joseph, you remember, endured being sold, falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, and it was all for His good and the good of God's people, Israel. That's providence. Paul's life included, as you know, beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, dangers around every corner. And every detail of his experience was designed for his ultimate good. And for example, the members of Caesar's household were converted because of his imprisonment. That's providence. So God's providential care is what our forefathers used to call a divine cordial. For those of you who know, a cordial is like a liqueur, a spiritual liqueur, something that's refreshing and makes the heart glad. The Lord Jesus rules the universe. He governs it with his people in view. And we don't have to worry. We're told that in Scripture. There's no reason for the Christian to be anxious. He feeds the birds, he clothes the grass of the field, and we are far more valuable than any of those. So Christ exhorts you and I to seek first his kingdom, and all of these things will be added. That's the promise for his people, the things we need, not necessarily the things we want. And then in this passage, Paul continues to encourage us with what many have called the golden chain. And the chain consists of five affirmations that explain God's purpose for us. And Paul doesn't go back merely in time, but he reaches back beyond the beginning of the world in describing this chain. In fact, he says that our salvation is rooted in the eternal, sovereign counsel of God. And here we're led to consider the very foundation of the Christian faith. From all eternity, God has decreed 
whatsoever comes to pass. Isaiah 46, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So the combined powers of all of earth and hell cannot thwart his purpose. His counsel shall stand, and not a single detail of his plan will be prevented. His counsel shall stand. It cannot be frustrated with infinite power. I'm not even sure what that means, infinite. With infinite power, he'll accomplish everything. And for believers, I think this truth, that God's eternal decree is there, is a matter of unspeakable joy. Now, for unbelievers, this truth, I imagine, can be a source of deep and terrifying fear and dread. Because the Lord is going to judge mankind and to give every person his due. And what God decreed from eternity is unalterable. It's immutable. It doesn't change. Nothing falls out in history but what the Lord decreed from eternity. Your life, my life. In Revelation 5, we see him who's seated on the throne, or John does. And in his right hand, there is this scroll that's written within and on the back. And supposedly, that scroll contains everything in history. And mind you, the only one that can open it is the Lamb who was slain. But God's choice of his people is unchangeable. And once elected, as we'll see, you're forever elected. And there are no mistakes in the Lamb's book of life. If a believer hears this, he or she may draw comfort, I think. Everything works together for your good. All the suffering, all the afflictions, every disappointment, all the bereavements. In our pastoral prayer this morning, there were several. Afflicted, suffering, bereaved. And I have to say, it works together for good. I don't know how all the time, but that's the promise. One end of the chain, this golden chain, hangs in eternity past. And the other end disappears far into the eternal future. And the middle of the chain is made up of our experience in time of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look more closely at the golden chain, okay? Five, chain, five links. The first link in this redemptive chain is, you can see, God's divine foreknowledge, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew. Now on the surface, the word translated foreknew means to know beforehand. God foresaw everything in history. He's not surprised by anything. How else could he foretell through prophecy the things to come? Which he did. And indeed, ancient prophecy fulfilled is an amazing thing, isn't it? Down to the very details. They cast lots for my clothing, Jesus said. But on a deeper level, this word foreknew means to set his heart on certain people. That is to say, God loves certain individuals he chose from the mass of fallen humanity, foreknew. And because of his love for them, he will, as we'll see, predestine them for salvation in Christ. 
Not a popular doctrine in our age. I understand that. Let's explain. Some people think that the word foreknew simply means God's prior knowledge. He knew beforehand those who would believe, and then he saves them. But if that's true, then Paul himself is undercutting his entire argument. John Stott's right, I think, when he says, if God predestines people because they're going to believe, then the ground of their salvation is in themselves and their merit instead of in him and his mercy. Right? You see, the apostle's whole point in this letter to the Romans is God's sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So the truth is, foreknew means something far more profound than simply prior knowledge. What is it that it means? Well, the text does not say that God knew something about individuals, does it? It says God knew the individuals themselves. He foreknew them. And to an Israelite, the word know denotes personal intimacy, affection. It's a verb that's practically synonymous with the verb to love. Amos 3 of Israel, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now let's face it, God knows about all the families of the earth, right? He knows about them, but he's only known Israel. Israel was the one whom he loved, the one with whom he formed a covenant, and it is no accident that the very same word is used to describe the intimacy of marriage. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So God foreknew his people in the sense that he foreloved them. Before the foundation of the world, the Lord set his heart upon certain individuals. 1 Corinthians 8, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Paul's not referring to knowledge about anyone. God knows all things about each one of you. If someone loves God, he's known by God. He's known in the sense of being loved by God. His foreknowledge is equivalent, therefore, to everlasting love. This is the ultimate and the eternal foundation from which our salvation springs. Our faith and our salvation are the fruit of God's everlasting love. It never had a beginning. When did God start loving you? Never. Because it never had a beginning. He's always loved you. From the farthest reaches of eternity, God foreknew you, the first link in the golden chain. And it's no wonder then that Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nobody can. That's the first link. Let's look at the second link in this redemptive chain, which is God's predestination. It says he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So because God placed his love on us, he then predestined us to become like Christ. 
And to predestine, as you know, means to predetermine something, to decide beforehand. When the early Christians recalled the opposition of Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews to Christ, they said, and I quote, God did whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. So what they're saying is that God decided beforehand those parties would be in opposition to his son. He predetermined what would happen to Christ as he accomplished salvation. In the same way then, if we use that word here, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. To foreknow is to love the sinner. To predestine is to ordain his or her salvation. If it's God's will that the believer be saved rather than the believer's will to be saved. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's God's will that the believer be saved rather than the believer's will to be saved. Even when it's not the believer's will, you're not seeking him. You're running away from him. It's God's will that you're saved, and he'll even change the believer's will. Paul says to his imaginary skeptic, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And do you know what Paul says in response? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? All glory belongs to him. If not for God, none of us would be saved or sanctified. You wouldn't be sitting here. The psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And this means that if you believe in Christ, it's because he chose you. That's what it means. That's the implication. In the gospel, God offers salvation and you choose to accept the terms. That's true. I'm not denying that you made the choice freely and consciously. But Paul teaches that the reason you chose was because God first chose you. That's part of the link in the golden chain. And you say to me, well, how can that be? I can freely choose, and yet you're telling me that he predestined me? Well, as Vadi Bakum says, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. I don't know how that works. But the scripture teaches both of them. Who am I to question the Lord? Should a finite creature challenge the infinite God? Do you remember when God begins to speak to Job? What did he say? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. (laughs) The Bible is perfectly comfortable with both of those truths. He chose you, and you chose him. But he chose first. The Bible holds these things in harmony, and what else would you expect from an infinite, eternal, unchangeable God? If we could figure out the ways of God, I don't think he'd be worthy of our worship, to be honest with you. 
Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our salvation is rooted in God's everlasting love and his eternal predestination. That's what it says. And for reasons that are known only to him, he chose you before the world began. And since his purpose is immutable, our salvation cannot be thwarted, not even by your sin or mine. Now, he may spank you, but it's not going to ruin your salvation. His purpose is immutable. Our salvation cannot be thwarted. Jesus says, my father, who has given my sheep to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's encouraging. And note the verb tense. Sometime in the past, the father gave the sheep to Christ. Well, when was that? Many of the sheep were as yet not even born when Jesus said that. And Jesus is referring to the covenant exchange, I believe, before the start of time. In the covenant between the Father and the Son, God gave those whom he predestined to the Son. And isn't that a comforting truth? A truth that Paul is going to explain far more explicitly in chapters 9 through 11? Why would anybody want to distort or avoid or weaken this kind of teaching? People say it's not fair. It's just not fair. Well, who's saying anything about fair? He's sovereign. He's a king. Scripture is abundantly clear, and our experience confirms it. All of us are born spiritually dead. That's how we come into this world by nature. We're blind and deaf to the things of God. And unless God opens the heart and illuminates the soul, there is no belief. Why else would we pray for somebody's salvation? Why else would we give thanks when they're actually converted? If it's up to us. And some argue against this doctrine that if we teach predestination, it's going to lead to spiritual pride. The teaching, they say, leads to professing Christians becoming arrogant. But why is this? Doesn't sovereign election rule out all boasting? Because it was nothing in us or done by us that moved God to choose us. There's nothing adorable or attractive in us. Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then some might claim that predestination will foster spiritual sloth. You become apathetic. Well, if our salvation is rooted in God's choice, they would say, why would I evangelize? Why would I want to tell anybody? He's going to save them anyway. But I think that's all wrong. I think the sovereign choice of God ensures the efforts of evangelism. You know that those whom he has predestined are going to come through your and my meager efforts. As Paul says, we were dead in trespasses and sins and were made by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And quite frankly, if it were simply up to us, 
we'd never be able to raise the dead. Only if God chooses, and only if God exerts his sovereign power will dead sinners come to life. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the gospel invitation goes out. It's a free offer of salvation. And the Spirit applies it to the heart. And when the Gentiles heard the gospel, we're told in Acts chapter 13, it said, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's no confidence in evangelism, in my estimation, unless God predestines. None. And God's great purpose in predestinating us is our sanctification. He conforms us to the image of His Son so that we can glorify Him. You're sitting here today singing praise, worshiping Him, glorifies the Son. The Father seeks those to worship Him. The transformation process begins in this life and it's completed in the life to come. Our character, our conduct is brought into conformity with Christ, little by little, gradually over time. And the development continues till we draw that last breath or Jesus returns. God foreknew and he predestined us so that Christ would be the first among his family. And he is worthy of the honor. So pleased was the Father in his incarnate Son that he wished to multiply the Son's image in millions of little reflectors. In light of that, our great desire, I think, ought to be conformity to Jesus Christ. It was to this that we're predestined. It's for this that God works everything together in your life and mine. Conformity to Christ. And if we be conformed to Christ, we have to commune with Christ. And I think that's an important reason for personal prayer. Communing with Christ. It's a powerful incentive to be in public worship on Sundays, which is what you're doing. To commune with the triune God, this is what transforms you. One theologian whom I respect calls what we're doing right now the theater of God's recreating grace. What he does here is transform his people. And this leads to the third link. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And here Paul highlights the first historical manifestation of God's foreknowledge. All of that was before time. Now he calls. In eternity, God loved and predestined us. In time, he effectually calls us. And it's certain those who are chosen before time are called in time. And the link, this link in the chain is designated the effectual call. Why? Because it's effective. It works. Through preaching the gospel, people are called to faith and repentance. And God sends out the herald, the minister, your faithful minister. And he proclaims salvation to any who believes in Christ and the offer is sincere. And then, if a person turns and trusts, he's saved. But not everybody responds favorably. Why is that? <clears throat> Not everybody believes in Christ. It's the best deal in the world. In fact, only those who've been foreknown and predestined are enabled to respond. The Holy Spirit enlightens the mind. He renews the heart. He draws the affections. 
And when that happens, the gospel call is made effectual, effective. Only when that happens, that takes place. As Peter says, brothers, then be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Do you see how he links those two together? By confirming our call, we confirm our election. So we ask ourselves, is there evidence of the call in your life and mine? Do you believe the scriptures? Do you trust in Christ? Do you see signs of true faith? Does the word mean something to you? Has your heart been softened? Has your mind been enlightened? Is your will becoming more subdued to the obedience of Christ? You see, these are evidences of an effectual call. And it's distinguished from the world. This book is the dullest book on earth to an unbeliever. I know because I was one and I tried to read it and it was boring until I was called. If you've professed your faith in Christ and if you aligned yourself with his bride, if you've been called from sin to holiness, from the world to Christ, from death to life, then you have evidence of being foreknown and predestined. Think of the effectual call, sort of like the Lord's summons of Lazarus from the tomb. Do you remember? He was dead four days. The sinner is dead in sin. The Lord comes and he cries, come forth. And at that sovereign command, the dead sinner now comes to life. And it can happen to anyone at any time. Any text of the Bible. I heard a story once of a man who happened to walk into a church one day. And they were reading the genealogy in Genesis 5. Remember that? So-and-so lived 500 years and he died. So-and-so lived 700 years and he died. Methuselah lives 969 years, but he still died. The cadence of death converted. Genealogy. Have you ever considered the conversion of the little man Zacchaeus? He was this wealthy tax collector who had extorted lots of money from his fellow Jews. And Jesus comes to town. Zacchaeus climbs the tree so he can see the Lord. And it says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And he became a believer and offered to make restitution. My question is, so many of the men in Jericho are far better than Zacchaeus. He was a crook. Why him? Why Zacchaeus? Because God had foreknown him and predestined him to be effectually called in the fullness of time. But then there's the fourth link, and we'll go quickly now. It's justification in Christ. Those whom he called, he justified. When a sinner is called and believes in Christ, he's justified by faith. He receives the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. Christ takes away his guilt, removes the stain, cleanses from sin. Is that you? Is that you? God, the judge of all the earth, declares that the sinner is righteous in his sight. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness. 
the person is forgiven. She's accepted by God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? And this theme has permeated everything Paul has said to this point. He's been explaining this glorious truth of justification ever since chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he said. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So God treats us as justified. We begin a life that will be perfected in heaven. Can anything be greater than that? And no one is justified unless he's called. And no one is called unless he's chosen. And no one is chosen unless he's foreknown. But then finally, notice the fifth and final link, our glorification. It says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And of course, here we come to the future destiny of those whom God foreknew. And what's striking about this last link is that Paul says the word is glorified. Did you notice that? In the past tense. Now, isn't that strange? Not many believers had died already when he wrote this, and they're in heaven. I get that. But you and I aren't dead yet. We're not yet glorified. And yet Paul includes us in verse 30 and uses the past tense. So if you're a Christian, you're not only called, you're not only justified, you're glorified. And I think what he's doing there is emphasizing the certainty of a believer's future. Paul speaks of it as past, since God certainly and infallibly will glorify us. And the indwelling Spirit is the guarantee, and His presence confirms it. So certain is God's purpose to glorify the saints that it's as good as done, and there's no question There can be no doubt. All of it's going to take place. And that's the Christian's hope. We look forward to the heavenly city. As Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Heaven is a place of rest and blessedness, good news for the weary. If you're weary of the daily grind, you have a glorious future to anticipate. As the pains of hell are indescribable, so joys of heaven are beyond words. Can't describe them. We cannot exaggerate heaven's unmixed pleasures and delights. There's perfect unity. There's sweet harmony. There's absolute beauty and pure blessedness. And there is nothing on earth that compares to the joys of heaven. I want you to think for a moment of the best, most joyful experience you've ever had. It's nothing compared to that. Not even the majesty of Sinai or the glory of Zion or the thrill of your conversion or the excitement of some worship service. None of it compares to the river of God's delights or the fullness of joy and the pleasures forevermore that are at his right hand. The joys of heaven will not be static. They're ever increasing. I don't know how that can be, but it's true. We're told we go from one degree of glory to another. So the glorified saints in heaven will be forever growing in blessedness. 
will always be advancing in knowledge and in the enjoyment of God. He's infinite, so we can spend an eternity figuring him out, which we'll never figure him out. But there will always be fresh discoveries of his glory, of his excellence, ever new and joyful experiences of one another. Can you imagine rehearsing the conversion stories of billions of people? It's going to take a while. New beauties sighted, new pleasures realized, new delights enjoyed, every faculty of both soul and body, inlets of liquid joy. That's heaven. So don't waste time trying to figure out God's foreknowledge and predestination. Nobody can see or peer into the eternal counsels of the Most High. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. If you're called then you're predestined and foreknown by God Almighty, and the golden chain can't be broken. If one link's there, the whole thing. You know the anchor that holds on to a large ship? There's a chain. You can only see a part of that anchor in its chain. But if you see the link of a chain, you know the anchor's down there, even though you can't see it. And that's the same with our calling and belief in Christ. Rejoice in our salvation, which originated in God's eternal counsel. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with joy we bow our heads and thank you for this marvelous teaching of the Apostle Paul as he unveiled for us your eternal counsel and the salvation that you planned and accomplished and applied to such as us. We pray that you'll receive our praise as we sing it to you with joyful and grateful hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.